Well, good afternoon. Happy Dad's Day to you dads out there. Good to see you. Uh, I think we were singing this song this morning. I was thinking about what it truly means to reflect the character of Christ in being a father. And I think this is the perfect song to sing on Dad's Day. Um, as we think about the character of Christ, that um, at the cross, uh, Jesus truly was the lamb who was slain. That he went to the cross like a lamb going to the slaughter. Um, he presented meekness and humility and a desire to serve. Yet on the third day, he resurrected from the grave like a roaring lion, displaying his authority and his victory over sin and death. And I was thinking about what that means to us as fathers, how, um, how we lead our families, that we're to lead our families with gentleness, right? With a sense of, of kindness and, and love as we lead our families and at the same time prepared to stand as a roaring lion against the schemes of the enemy to attack and bring division within our homes. Yet in the culture we live in, how backwards that is, how so many men lead their families like a roaring lion using the volume of their voice to exhibit control and authority to keep things going the way they want it to go and yet against the schemes of the enemy how so much passivity and weakness and fear right allow or cause men to shrink back and how it's completely flipped from the example we see in Christ and that hopefully encourages and challenges the hearts of the fathers here today as we think about what it means to be Christ to our families uh, to lead those whom God has entrusted to to us with kindness and love and patience and even a sense of meekness while prepared to stand as a roaring lion against the schemes of the enemy. So happy Dad's Day. That was free. There you go. Hopefully that, hopefully that encouraged and challenged you this morning. All right. Uh, well, a couple things. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20 this morning. Okay, if you want to go ahead and get there, Acts 20, as you're turning there, just a few highlights from student camp. You may notice this section kind of right over here, all wearing the same t-shirts, same color t-shirts. Um, our students are back from camp. Um, I heard it was a fantastic week. Um, God showed up in some pretty powerful ways. Um, I was talking to Jeremy yesterday on the phone. Now, this was Jeremy's first time to lead a group of students from our church to camp and had 51 students go to camp. So, yeah, uh, quite the... Uh, Quite the adventure, right? Just jumping in and going with 51 students and, uh, and all the adult uh, sponsors who went with and helped uh, navigate the week. Um, uh, some highlights, Jeremy shared with me that six students um, gave their lives to Christ this past week from our church, uh, which is super exciting, absolutely. Yep. And um, I shared this last Sunday, I'll share it again. We took, um, I believe, one of the largest group of, of junior high students to camp this year, 7th and 8th graders, and Jeremy had commented to me just how proud he was of all the older students, the job that you did, uh, kind of taking them under your wing and including them and everything that was going on and showing them the ropes. And so I want to thank all the older students, too, for, um, for, for taking in the young ones and letting them be a part of everything that was going on rather than kind of isolating and pushing back. Um, there was a lot of unity I heard this week, and so, um, so it was really exciting to hear about what all that God did. Um, to the rest that didn't go to camp... Uh, last week before they left, I had mentioned there was a financial need for scholarships for students. Um, I'm excited to let you know that um, everything that was needed was given uh, because of your generosity. Um, there wasn't one student who we had to turn away and say, no, you got to stay home. So thank you for showing up big. Thank you for those of you who prayed along with um, the students and the, and the leaders that went. Uh, I believe God was glorified last week uh, in your lives. And so thanks for bringing some of that back and sharing it with us. Um, glad to have you all here. So 
just want to keep clapping, don't you? Yeah, I just keep, I'll just keep throwing it out there. You just keep clapping. All right. Well, we're going to get started in Acts 20. Uh, if you're visiting with us today and haven't been here, we've been in the book of Acts for like the last 14 years, and, uh, and we're almost done with it. Not, not really. It feels that way. We started last year in September. We'll finish last Sunday in August. Um, it's, been, it's been a fun journey, learning a lot about the early church and about what God wants for us. Um, we've made it to chapter 20, and so let me just give you a little recap on where we are. So we left off last week. Uh, Paul uh, was in Ephesus, and, uh, and, and God was using him in some powerful ways there in Ephesus. Uh, we saw uh, people being saved. We saw the sick being healed. Even uh, a person gets raised back to life from the dead. And so like, God's working powerfully through Paul. Um, we saw that um, not only that, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, sorcery and, and magic going on in town, and, uh, and so um, through Paul's ministry, a great number of those people became Christians, and they brought all their books together uh, and burned them, had this big book-burning bonfire to denounce their sorcery and to follow Christ. Um, well, that wasn't the end of it. Um, in the process, many of those people who were believers quit worshiping the false gods, and so therefore they quit participating in uh, the worship of the false gods and the purchasing of these little silver idols. And so there was a guy named, by the name of Demetrius there who uh, was in that business, and so he noticed that sales were down. Uh, he blamed Paul, and he actually started a riot uh, there in town before chapter 19 ends. And so Paul made quite the, uh, quite the impact there in town. Uh, before he made the statement that it was time for him to wrap up his third missionary journey, head back to Jerusalem, and then eventually to Rome. And so what Paul doesn't know at this point in time, all he knows is this is what the Holy Spirit has said to him, make your way to Jerusalem and then get ready to go to Rome. But essentially, that's, that's it for Paul, right? He dies in Rome. So his life is literally before him there uh, as he gets ready to wrap up his third missionary journey and head back. Now, rather than jumping on a boat there in, in the southern area of Greece, like Athens or Corinth, and just taking like the boat route straight back to Antioch and then to Jerusalem, he decides to go by foot, right, because that's the easy thing to do, and travel back through these towns encouraging these churches and these believers before finally getting on a boat and setting sail. And when you would sail back in this day and time, you didn't have a lot of resources, so you could only go a couple days, and you'd have to port, replenish, and then go again. And so we're going to pick up the story today um, in the, the small town of Miletus, which is not far from Ephesus, where Paul is going to, his boat is going to make port, and he's going to get off there uh, to replenish supplies, and he's going to send for the elders in Ephesus to come to Miletus, and he's going to say some things to him, okay? That's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 20, verse 17. Let's begin together. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but this would be a, a good opportunity for us to talk about what elders are, what church leadership looks like from a biblical perspective, and even why we do what we do here at Solid Rock. And so what we're going to see in this passage and in multiple passages in the, in the New Testament is that the title elder is interchanged with the title overseer and the title pastor, okay? And so when you see those words in the New Testament, it's talking about the same role of leadership in the church. And what we're seeing happen here in the book of Acts is this, that God designed the church to be led by a plurality of spiritual leaders. Never was the church designed to be ruled or led by one man, okay? 
God's design is that, that, that spiritual leaders would come together in consensus and plurality and lead the church under the lordship of Jesus. And so that's what's happening here. Paul's calling for the spiritual leaders in Ephesus to come talk with him, okay? Now, we see this all throughout the New Testament. Uh, matter of fact, there's, there's a couple of uh, places where um, there isn't elder leadership, and Paul writes letters to those pastors, and what does he tell them to do? Appoint elders. He writes 1 Timothy. Read chapter 3. Paul's telling Timothy, right, to appoint elders, put them in place. Titus, he writes a letter to Titus. Chapter 1, he tells Titus, put in place what remained by appointing elders in all the little towns where the churches are. And so we know this is how God's designed the church to be led, never by one man, but essentially a, a group or a council or a plurality of spiritual leaders leading the church under the lordship of Christ. And that sets for us the model as a church on how, um, how our church works here at Solid Rock under the leadership of elders. We have six elders right now at our church, and, and we're in the process of um, working to add additional elders to um, our elder body. Um, in preparation for the growth that's coming, making sure that we're able to shepherd and to oversee and to care for the church. Um, potentially, as early as next Sunday, we'll be making an announcement um, on that for you. Um, but wanted you to kind of know why we do what we do here at Solid Rock. It's our best attempt to model what we see happening in the first century church. And so here, Paul calls for the elders. We don't know how many there were, but we know that they're the leaders of that local church. He says, hey, come to my lettuce. I want to say some things to you. So we'll pick this up now in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. So Paul begins his speech by reminding the elders of the example that they saw in his life. Now, what he's not doing uh, is not, he's not seeking the applause of these elders. He's not bragging on himself so that they'll go, oh, Paul, you're right. You did so many good things in our church. Thank you for what you did. What Paul is doing is he's showing and reminding these elders, remember all the amazing things that God did through me? And if God can do those things through somebody like me, then surely he can do as much or more through all you. And so Paul's using his life as an example, not of how awesome he is, but of how awesome God is and what God can do through you when you surrender yourself to him. And so Paul reminds these elders, remember how I lived among you? You remember how that worked and how many amazing things God did? And so verse 19 through 21, Paul is going to remind them specifically of, of, of what he did while he was there, beginning with serving. He says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul reminded these elders, this was the main thing I was doing when I was there. I was serving. Remember how I served with humility? Sometimes you'd catch me with a tear in my eye. I served through tears, and I served through trials and affliction. But not only did I serve, remember how I also testified? Remember how I spoke to you, and I, and I preached to you, and I taught you about what? The gospel of Jesus? Now, this would be a good moment for us to pause. There is a... Um, 
a bit of a misunderstanding in the Bible Belt Church of America when it comes to the gospel. And it's, it's true in other places, but I see it primarily here. When we talk about the gospel, um, what I grew up learning was this, that you talk about the gospel in terms of sharing it, right? You share the gospel. Okay, that's evangelism. That's where you, you share your faith in Christ with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. That's sharing the gospel. But what we see Paul do is so much more than that. He teaches the gospel to those who have already heard it. Now that's so important for us to understand. The gospel is not your doorway into Christianity that you shut behind you and then you walk and leave behind. It's something that we learn more and more about every day. So when I first became a Christian at the age of 15, when I went to student camp for the first time, I encountered Jesus. I encountered his love, his grace, and his mercy, and it wrecked me in a good way forever. However, when I first encountered the love of God, what I did at first is I compared it to people in my life. And I would sing songs about how much God loved me, and I would compare it to how much my mom loved me. I'd say, oh, that's, that's what that looks like. That's what that feels like. I would sing about his forgiveness, and I would think about where somebody had forgiven me. And that was when I first became a Christian. But the more I learned the gospel, the more I realized that God's love was deeper than my mom's love, that God's forgiveness was deeper than when my friends forgive me. And the more I heard the gospel, the more I learned the gospel, the more God expanded my understanding of his love for me and the magnitude of his forgiveness for me, right? So to this day, I still have not grasped, I have not fathomed the love of God expressed in sending his son to die for me. It still baffles me. I have not fully wrapped my mind around that level of love. I've never been loved like that, right, here on this earth apart from God. And so as a Christian, I have to grow in that knowledge of his love. And so Paul reminds him, remember how I served you and how I taught you week in, week out about the love of God in the gospel. Now, this is what Paul was doing, okay, which is going to bring to mind some questions. Why did Paul do that? Why was Paul so faithful to this mission? Why was Paul so given to this work of Christ? What was it? Was Paul just a religious superstar, right? Designed by God? Did he have the religious gene? Was he just yeah, this religious superstar? Or was something else going on in his heart that caused him to be so faithful? As we think about what it was that drove Paul, I'm going to pose a couple of questions to us as a church. And, and I feel like this is kind of what Paul's getting at with these elders. As Paul says to these elders, remember what God did through me? Just imagine what God could do through you. I, I want to dare us to think for just a minute about what would happen if this church was unleashed on this city, right, in the same way that Paul was unleashed on Ephesus. What if we for a moment dared to believe that God could do as much or more through each one of our lives that he did for the Apostle Paul? What impact would that have on our city? If every person here including everybody who was in the previous two services, we went out and served this city with humility, with tears, and even in the midst of affliction, never shrinking back from testifying to the goodness of God in the gospel. Imagine what impact that would have on this city. And here's the second question. What is it that keeps us from doing that? What is it? 
Now, what we're going to do next in verses 23 through 24 is what I believe really to be the heartbeat of this passage and the answer to the question, why Paul did these things, that you and I might figure out how we too could participate with the work of God on this level. Verse 22, Paul said, he reminded the elders, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And we're going to work our way backwards through that. So Paul ends with, here's the ministry I've been called to. This is what I've been called to do, to finish this course of the ministry, to testify to the gospel. Right? We see that in Paul's life. But our question is, why? Why were you so faithful, Paul? Better question, why can't I be more faithful? Right? Why am I not more given to the work of God than I am right now? Does anybody else wonder that about yourself? Anybody else want to be more faithful in your life to God? Well, the answer is embedded in this, in this text here. Paul begins by saying in verse 24, here's, here's what you need to understand about my life. I do not consider my life, I do not count my life really to be worth anything or anything precious. What Paul is saying is my life is not really worth anything compared to what I have in Christ. That's what drives me. That's what motivates me. Rather than shrinking back and trying to save my life, I'm running headfirst into danger, proclaiming the gospel, trusting God with the outcome. And why would Paul do that? What happened in Paul's life to drive him to that point where he said, I don't account my life as worth anything compared to serving Christ. I think uh, the answer is best expressed in a conversation Jesus was having with a Pharisee in Luke 7. You may or may not be aware of, of this story. So there was a Pharisee by the name of Simon who invited Jesus to come over to his house. And he wasn't there just to hang out with Jesus. He was really asking some probing questions. And so Jesus is sitting at a table across from this Pharisee, exchanging conversation. And while doing so, there was a woman in town who had a reputation of being the sinful woman. She hears that Jesus is in this Pharisee's house, and so she kind of busts in on them with some perfume, and she slides in behind Jesus, breaks open the perfume, and anoints Jesus with perfume, and begins to weep and wash his feet with her tears and hair. It's this beautiful expression of, of honor to Jesus. The Pharisee, sitting across from Jesus, says to him, Jesus, if you knew that woman like I know that woman and like the rest of the men in this town know that woman, you wouldn't let her touch your feet. She's a sinner. And so Jesus stops and he begins to use a parable to illustrate something. He says to the man, suppose there were two men who borrowed money from a moneylender. One of them borrowed 50 bucks and the other one borrowed 500 bucks. And when it came time to collect the debt, the money lender came to the two men and said, it's time to pay up, just like you agreed to do. And both men say to him, we don't have any money. We can't afford to pay. And suppose the money lender, being generous and gracious and kind, just canceled their debts right on the spot. You're forgiven. You don't owe me anything. And then walked away. 
And Jesus said to the Pharisee, which one of those men do you think would love the moneylender more? And the Pharisee thought for a minute. He said, well, I suppose the one who owed more money. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 7, verses 40, verse 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. You see, the key to Paul's faithfulness was not that he was super religious. It wasn't that he was raised in a religious family and mom and dad took him to Sunday school. The key to Paul's faithfulness is he knew how much he'd been forgiven. That's what drove Paul to be faithful. That's what drove him to say, I don't account my life as worth anything. Because essentially what he's saying is, I know what I deserve. Now, if you know Paul's story, we're in Acts 20, back up to Acts chapter 9. This is the same guy who's running around from town to town, door to door, kicking down doors, dragging men and women out into the street, out into public, putting them to death because they're Christians. Right? So he knows what he deserves. He's fully aware of his sinfulness and how much he has done to try to destroy the work of God. Paul knows he's been forgiven much. Therefore, he loves much. See, if you want to be more faithful to God, the key isn't to make a commitment today to be more faithful to God. That'll never work for you. If you're a student here and you want proof of that, look across the room at all the adults and we'll, we'll admit that. We've tried that route. I'm going to be more faithful tomorrow, God. I'm going to have my quiet time every day for the rest of my life. I'm going to read my Bible and pray. And we've tried to make commitments in our own strength only to fail. It's not where faithfulness to God comes from. Faithfulness to God comes from a deep understanding of how much God loves you and how much he's forgiven you. So if you want to be more faithful to God, what we need to do is we need to meditate on the love, the kindness, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn the gospel more deeply. We need to fathom, we need to attempt to fathom and understand that which you already know. He loves you, you've been forgiven. We need to come to understand that more and more deeply. Because when we're forgiven much, we love much. And so we see this in Paul's example. Now this is antithetical, or to put it in a pop culture terms, um, it's the opposite of the voice of our culture. Okay, This is not the message coming to you from the culture we live in. Even the message of the church today. The message of our culture today is primarily make yourself number one. You want to be happy in life? Learn to love yourself better. You want to be more successful? Love yourself more. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Now, here's the, here's the little secret, the dirty little secret. Nobody has to teach us to love ourselves. I was born loving me pretty well. And, and here's what you need to know about my life. I have never sinned against God out of my love for you. I've never sinned against God out of my love for my wife or my love for my son. My sin against God is always out of my love for myself. Right? It's always me. Not that I don't know what to do or what right or wrong is. It's me knowing what wrong is and doing it anyway to please myself. That's when I cross a line and I hurt you. That's when I cross a line and I sin against God. And so the message of our culture would say, no, no, no. Love yourself first and foremost and then just don't offend anybody. That's the secret to happiness. It's not the message of the gospel, right? The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come to earth to die for sinful people like me. 
Case in point, right here. And my faithfulness to God is a response to my understanding of his forgiveness of my sins. And the more deeply I understand that, the more surrendered and committed I am to his mission for my life. Matter of fact, listen to the words of this same guy, Paul. He writes a letter to Timothy, a young pastor. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, look at what he says. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We've established that, but look at what he says. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, or as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul used his life as an example everywhere he went. When he would stand up and preach to people, Jesus loves you, he can forgive any sin, he would stop and go, case in point, my life. I used to kill Christians just a few years ago. And if God can love me, right, that displays, that magnifies his patience with us, then surely he can forgive you. And Paul says, that's the point of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm the worst one. I'm the worst one. If you don't believe that God can forgive you, look at my life and let that be an example to you of how patient and how kind God is. That's what drove Paul in his faithfulness. And that's what caused Paul to say, you know what, here's here's why I'm doing what I do. Because I've encountered the forgiveness of God, I no longer consider or account my life as worth anything, of any precious value. My life has been purchased by the blood of Christ. I belong to him now, right? He's ready for this journey to end. He can snuff me out at any point. I'm good with that. I trust him with that. Now, let me ask you a question. Did that mean that Paul's life would always be safe or free from hardship? You caught what he said, right? He said that his life was constrained by the Spirit. Let's stop for just a minute. That's similar to what we read two chapters ago in 18. In chapter 18, we read this, that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word of God. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews about Jesus being the Christ. That word occupied, we talked about, means to be constrained by. Paul was constrained and committed to teach nothing but the gospel. Chapter 20, now we're reading that he was also constrained by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, and we talked about this at the end last week, about how us as Christians, our job is to participate with what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. And in Galatians 5, we're told to keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in step with, walk in line with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're reading about in Paul's life. He was constrained by the Holy Spirit. But did you catch what the Holy Spirit said to him? Did the Holy Spirit promise Paul um, a, a gorgeous wife who always does the laundry and cooks good meals and obedient children and this nice little farm there outside of Israel or outside of Jerusalem? Did, did the Holy Spirit make any of those promises to him? Here's what the Holy Spirit said to Paul. He said, I, I, verse, this is verse 22, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there in Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies or talks to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So every town Paul went to, as he prayed, as he listened to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would whisper to Paul and, and kind of cast this vision for Paul, afflictions and imprisonment await you, Paul. And he didn't know which town it was going to be. He didn't know when it was going to happen. He could just see a mountain way off in the distance, and the Holy Spirit was saying, Paul, we're going to make it to that mountain over there. And on that mountain is imprisonment and affliction 
and the probability of death, that's where we're headed. Now that blows the prosperity gospel out of the water, doesn't it? When our lives are constrained by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, he will oftentimes lead us into and through and out of trials, hardships, right? Holy Spirit hasn't come to any of us in this room and promised you, right, all the, all the things that we want out of life. Beautiful home, a nice neighborhood, your wife's eyebrows are always manicured, your children are always obedient, the grass always looks good, like, right? That American dream is not the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has promised to indwell you, to walk with you. The Holy Spirit has not promised you freedom from affliction and trial, yet there's no better place than to be constrained by the Holy Spirit of God. I was thinking about an illustration of what this, uh, this looks like um, and examples from my own life. I was thinking about, um, as we get ready to commission a team to go to the Philippines, I was thinking about the last time that I was there on the mission trip in the Philippines. Uh, it's been a couple years ago. And uh, I got to go with a team of about seven or eight from here. And uh, at the time, Jeff Sanders was leading the mission team, and he would rally us all together in these meetings and tell us how, what we were going to be doing and all sorts of things. And, and he, was, he just kept throwing me this, this bone, because he knows I love adventure and hiking and all that kind of rugged stuff. He's like, hey, there's a good chance we're going to be doing a trek off in the jungle to go find a group of people who've never met Americans and never heard the gospel. And I'm like, man, I'm in. Just sign me up, give me a map, point the way. So we get there, we're about two days in, and we're dividing up all the different tasks that were going on. We were putting in a water system, we were doing some VBS with the kiddos, and Jeff pulls me aside and says, hey, we're gonna, do the, we're gonna do the trek. I'm like, yes, let's do this. And so he said, hey, you see that mountain over there, and you can see a mountain four, four or so miles off in the distance. He said, on top of that mountain, there's a nomadic uh, people group who've never encountered Americans and never heard the gospel. You're gonna lead a trek of Americans. I'm gonna send two people with you. You're gonna make your way. It's gonna take about eight miles to get there through the jungle up that mountain to take, to take some gifts to them. We're gonna take them some, uh, some meat and some, uh, some rice and some things like that, and we're gonna share the gospel with them. Like, I'm in. That's why I came. And so I began to kind of think about, you know, is Jeff going to let me pick my team? And I started thinking about the, who all was in our group. And I was like, already starting to kind of silently pick my, my crew to go with me. Because I'm thinking, like, if something happens to me, I want to pick somebody that can carry me out. But, you know, if something happens to them, I want it to be somebody I love enough to carry out, right? And so Jeff goes to me, he says to me, hey, hey, I've picked your team. I'm like, okay, so I've got to, I narrowed it down to two or three people. All of them, men, physically fit, really strong. He said, first off, you're taking my wife Randy with you. All right, so who else are you sending to help me carry her back out and her stuff, right? And he said, oh, and the second person I'm sending with you is a guy named Tyson. Now, Tyson's a, a, um, a web designer from Flint, Michigan. He weighs about a buck 18. He doesn't have enough fat on his body to carry him for a full day's work. I'm a little nervous, and I'm thinking, well, if something happens to Randy, I can carry her out, and if something happens to Tyson, she can carry him out, but if something happens to both of them, i got to make a hard decision which one I'm leaving there, right? And I'm like, well, here's the deal. I can't walk back into camp with Tyson over my shoulder, right? They'll never let me. So I'm bringing Randy back. If it comes down to it, sorry, Tyson, I'm taking Randy back, and we'll come back and get you, and whatever's left, we'll, we'll carry that back, right? So this is what I'm thinking in my mind because Jeff had tasked me to make it to the mountain, share the gospel, and bring his wife and Tyson back alive. I'm feeling all this pressure, and I'm getting all psyched up. 
Well, then Jeff, uh, we're getting ready to leave. We've got all our stuff packed on, ready to go. Got my big survival knife right here. I'm kind of Rambo style. Got my headband on, face is painted. And he's like, and so, hey, I want to introduce you to so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, okay. So basically he was sending a Filipino guide with us. Now that was a game changer, right? So now I'm thinking, oh, somebody's going to help us get to where we need to get. And if Tyson goes down, this, I can put him on the little Filipino's back, and then I can take care of it. We're going to make it out alive, right? Change the game. So we began this eight or so mile trek to the top of this mountain. The first five kilometers was pretty easy, dirt road. We're traveling around. We go from kilometer 50 to kilometer 55. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, our guide takes a right-hand turn off of the dirt road and then just disappears. Okay? And like you see the, you know, the, the trees, the foliage just kind of goes. As he just disappeared. I'm like, I think, I think there's a trail. I think we're supposed to follow him or he's going to the bathroom. We're not sure. Let me check it out. So I step in, I'm like, yeah, there's a trail here. So we follow uh, this little guide through the wilderness. And there's like rainforest, foliage, trees are down. We're stepping over stuff and under stuff and through stuff. And he's got a machete and he's carving the way, um, which is it's challenging for a Filipino because they stand about four foot eight. So when they carve a trail, it's about this high. And here I am trying to make it through this, this trail he's cutting. So we make it to finally to the base of the mountain. You can tell, like, boom, it just goes up. Now, um, in the United States and really all around the modern world where hiking is concerned, there's this thing called the switchback, okay? If you've ever been hiking, the switchback is it's, it's a life changer. Here's what a switchback is. It's a trail that primarily goes horizontally across a mountain face, switches back and goes back, and eventually you slowly but surely make your way up to the peak, right? They never heard of a switchback in the Philippines. Their trail, straight up the mountain, okay? Straight up the mountain. So I'm here. And the little Filipino goes up the mountain. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do that? Because it's muddy. The foliage is so thick, and it's just raining. There's no dry ground. And so literally there were several places on the trail that were so muddy and steep, I would take one of my walking poles and stick it in the mud of the embankment we were climbing up. Randy would step on my pole, and then I would stick the other one in. She would step up on that. I would stick the other one in, and she would climb up that section and go on, right? And then I'd take Tyson. I'd throw him up, and Randy would catch him. And then, uh, then I would find my way up, and we would just, we'd continue this over and over and over again for hours in the jungle, just all cut up and insects, you know, squatted, splattered all over the place. We finally make it to the top of the mountain. It was just like, this, our little guide was just like an Uber driver. I mean, he just stopped and was just like, there it is. And we looked, and behold, there was this little village. There it was. We had made it, right? And I was thinking about what we're reading about here with Paul's life and the Holy Spirit Right, the Holy Spirit is like that guide. Not promising it's going to be easy. Not always taking you down the journey you want to go. Right, but, but in the end, leading you to the ultimate destination God has for you. That's what Paul's saying here. Off in the distance, the Holy Spirit said, there's a mountain that we're going to. And there's a journey to get there. But it's going to be a journey tempered with affliction, hardship, and trials. You want to go? And Paul said, yes. Why would you do that, Paul? Because I don't account my life as worth anything. It'd be much easier just to stay here in Jerusalem and hang out, but I don't count my life as worth anything. How did you get to that place, Paul? Because I don't want to get there. And Paul says this to me. He says, because I've been forgiven much. And what I've tasted in the goodness of God and the forgiveness of sins is worth anything, more than anything else this earth has to offer. I want to 
Before we uh, invite our Philippines team up, we're going to do that in just a minute and introduce the ones that are in this service to you and pray over them. Um, I want to pray for us today, okay? I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you, like me, are a Christian, and you needed to be refreshed in the goodness of God today. And so in a moment when we stand to sing, maybe for you and for me, we would just spend some time meditating on just how much we've been forgiven. Maybe we would, maybe today, God would refresh our awareness of the depth of his love for us, right? The great chasm between how unworthy we are, yet how much God loves us anyway, right? And maybe that would move us to more faithful lives, closer to a place where we're ready to count our lives as nothing for the sake of Christ. And maybe you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, and so today what you need to hear is that God loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place, die for you, give his life for you as an expression of his love and that by trusting and believing in him, you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the gospel. And so I don't know where each person is here today, but I'm gonna pray for us that we would respond to that today. And then after that, Brian Lamb's gonna come up and introduce us to the team. So let's pray together. Um, Father, I thank you, God, for this beautiful, fresh reminder Um, not not a reminder of how cool Paul was or how faithful Paul was, but a reminder of what drove Paul to faithfulness. He encountered your forgiveness. And so God, today, we need a fresh encounter with your forgiveness. We need a fresh reminder. For many of us, God, we need a deeper understanding of just how good you are that, God, our lives might respond the same way Paul did God, that we could leave here today considering ourselves as of less value and your kingdom of more value. And Father, I pray for any person here today that doesn't know you personally, that today would be the day of trusting in Jesus for the first time. God, you haven't promised us safety. You haven't promised us an easy life. You've promised to walk with us, guiding us, constraining us by your Holy Spirit. So, Father, this morning we pray all these things in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ.